Welcome to the Idea Land podcast, hosted by Ravi Kamati Reddy. Dr. Sean Casey is an astrophysicist, veteran NASA scientist, and co-founder and managing director of the Silicon Valley Space Center, a business accelerator for new space entrepreneurs. As a mentor and investor, Dr. Casey has supported early-stage startups in the growing commercial spaceflight industry. I think we're live, so good to see you. Hey, thanks, Ravi. Well, uh, I think I'm still dealing with the big COVID shutdown in California. Yeah, that's a scary thing. You know, one of these questions was, why are we going to Mars and stuff? But I think we have enough reasons to leave <laughs> leave the planet, well, right? Yeah, that's mean, a pretty uh, that's a pretty tough road tough road to hoe. I mean, there's a lot involved in uh, settling uh, anywhere else, much less settling on another planet, which is not quite as hospitable as this one. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I did want it to, I really wanted to get into that too and get your opinion on that. But, um, you know, you always seem to have the pulse uh, when it comes to space flight, commercial space particularly, but just the, you're at the intersection of the science, the innovation and the commercial aspect. So just so everybody who's listening just an idea, can you give us just a bit of background? Well, thanks. Yeah, sure. Thanks for me. You know, um, number one, uh, I, I started my a career off as a research scientist, uh, doing my uh, PhD at the University of Chicago, and then spent uh, 20 plus years at NASA, both NASA Goddard and NASA Ames, working on various astrophysics projects. Uh, most recently, the uh, NASA SOFIA program, which was in the news a little while ago for the detection of, uh, of water um, and some of its isotopes on the moon. Over the last uh, decade, I've been here in Silicon Valley working with a variety of uh, early stage uh, space companies. And prior to leaving uh, NASA, uh, I got my MBA at the uh, Berkeley Columbia Executive Program. So in some sense, I have a combination. I come from both the research side and the business side here. Bit of a transition going from NASA to commercial space. But I think we had met probably uh, 10 years ago at one of the early uh, Virgin, uh, Virgin Galactic uh, workshops where they were talking about uh, building um, a suborbital vehicle to do research flights. And, you know, uh, Sir Richard Branson was focused on commercial aspects of that, but a number of people were saying this will be a good uh, research opportunity, much like uh, the SOFIA program, uh, stratospheric observations uh, on SOFIA and mesospheric uh, observations on suborbital vehicles and yeah. microgravity yeah. environments, you know, is, is an important uh, first step to building experiments that would function in LEO and beyond. Yeah. And just going back a little bit there, what I think is interesting, because we met in 2009, which just seems like forever ago. It sure does. Right. Mm-hmm. At 2009. And I remember because we were sitting next to each other at that at that workshop and they had they were talking about manned space flight and commercial space flight, commercial tourism, I think, in particular, and mm-hmm. how to track people's health. And one of the NASA guys or something had brought out it, you know, it looked like a suitcase from a 1970s Samsonite commercial, you know, full of equipment. And he's like, this is what we used to monitor astronauts. And I'm sitting there thinking, what the heck is that? Like, we right. have such, you know, much better stuff, right? And I think um, that's what really sparked the conversation. But you've made this transition from what I would call big science into commercial. But can we just talk about the big science? Because um, 
just some amazing stuff that you worked on. What was it like when you were going through astrophysics at University of Chicago back then? I mean, where was the world when it came to astrophysics and science funding in general? We still get a lot of funding from the NSF and, and NASA. Uh, astrophysics at the time um, was mostly a lot of small collaborations. Uh, at Chicago, you could always point to the uh, particle physics groups yeah. where, you know, you would see a paper in, um, you know, the uh, uh, physics journals that would have, you know, 100 plus authors. And okay. a lot of the astrophysics projects really weren't we're not of that magnitude, but today, you know, over the last 30 years, we've seen the birth of, well, you know, let's say just big science and whether that's people that are collaborating on uh, ground-based facilities or some of the work that was done on the Hubble, you know, for instance, the Hubble deep field uh, image right. was really came from director's discretionary time, but you know, the number of people that participate in a program like that is uh, is enormous. So I think what we've seen in astrophysics is a shift from small colloquial projects to something which is enormous, akin to what you see in the physics community and you know perhaps even in the you know bio community when you're talking about gene sequencing, the number of people that are involved. Uh, of course, uh, during that time, we've seen the rise of the internet, which has facilitated um, multi-university and uh, multinational uh, collaborations and you know, all yeah. the communication infrastructure, whether it's email or video conferencing, that has allowed a widely uh, a disparate group of researchers to come together um, in order to address you know, individual scientific projects. Yeah, that's definitely been the story in big biology, in science. I mean, I'm looking at a box on the desk right here in front of me that says 23andMe mm -hmm. on it. And if you right. told me that you get genomic sequencing through Amazon, I'd just be like, what are you talking about, right, 15 years ago? The, I mean, the amount of work it takes to get to that level of commercialization is mm -hmm. kind of part of the space story, right? So just to give people an idea, you mentioned like Hubble Deep Field, which is, if, mm -hmm. if you, you know, for the people listening who've never seen that image, if you want to, if you want to reach a spiritual connection with the universe, I mean, go check out the Hubble Ultra Deep Field and the Deep Field image, right? That, that story behind that, that it's director's discretionary time, with people just doing curiosity-based science, right? Let's go, let's go point a telescope in the oh. sky and see what's there. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's, there's hypothesis-based uh, research, and then there's sort of discovery science, which is most of the science proposals are based on a chain of evidence that says, you know, here's the reasons why we should go do this. Yeah. And, you know, you can say that there's sort of not enough time, you know, out of the peer review process that's dedicated to, I wonder what would happen if we do this. I wonder what we're going to, uh, we're going to find. But, you know, part of that is just the research dollars that are available. And um, you can always allocate a certain amount of time uh, with a facility to what is called director's discretionary time. And director's discretionary time is that you don't have to go through the peer review process. The right. observatory director says, here's what we're going to go do. And, uh, and they go do that. And that's kind of for, uh, you know, discovery science. Do you think, just as an aside, uh, do you think that we need more of that in science? Director's discretionary time type of freedoms where you don't have to go through the bureaucratic red tape? Or I, I don't know. I mean, there's, I, I think these days, I want to say the scientific process, but not the scientific process that's understood out of the enlightenment, but the scientific process. But how do you manage these facilities? There are kind of some rules of thumb 
that are uh, that are out there. And it's probably, you know, somewhere in the 90, 10, 80, 20 rule uh, thereabouts. But, you know, overall, I, I would say it's not necessarily a discretionary time, but you might say the allocation of federal research. If you look at some place like the Keck Telescope, where uh, the UCLA team, Andrea Getz down at UCLA, right. is sharing the Nobel Prize right. with Reinhard Genzel for the discovery of the supermassive black hole. Reinhard Genzel's at the Max Planck Institute in Germany. Um, you know, they're sharing the Nobel Prize with uh, the two of them with Roger Penrose. But, uh, you know, their work on the galactic on the galactic center and the supermassive black hole, you know, if you follow what's been happening on the Keck, you know, how much money does the Keck really get? And, you know, compared to uh, a number of other programs where the federal government spends its money and what it's producing is Nobel, you know, Nobel quality, Nobel laureates and Nobel quality science out of this. And so are those programs underfunded? Um, you know, a program like SOFIA is, was constantly battling for funding, given all the other programs. But I would say the NASA science program is just fundamentally underfunded compared to all the other things that, uh, uh, that we do. Yeah, what's funny is uh, my new yardstick now for payment and for funding is, uh, is Marvel movie budgets. So it's like when you're making movies about mm -hmm. space and, you know, fake superheroes in space and they start costing $300 million. And I'm like, well, we can go to space. <laughs> right and launch things into space and explore yeah. space for like similar amounts of money that the well revenues are coming back on these movies like over a billion dollars i mean yeah i think it's easy to understand the roi in terms of dollars but it's hard to understand the roi in terms of uh, nobel prizes what is the yeah. roi to the country for uh nobel nobel quality research what is the roi for the United States having a leadership position in science and, you know, which fields are you going to going to pick, you know, as we exit the 20th century, we're going from a position where the United States was a leader in many fields to where perhaps it's ceding leadership uh, to the rest of the world. And, you know, are you doing that intentionally or is that an unintentional consequence of your, uh, you know, physical policies? Hopefully you're doing it intentionally. Because if you're doing things unintentionally, that means you're not really paying attention to what's happening. You're not planning. Yeah, that's right. And there's an interesting question to be asked here, which is, if you were a 19-year-old, again, in the United States, or actually, no, let's say it's someplace like uh, Malaysia or India, and you mm -hmm. wanted to go into space, where would you go, right? Mm -hmm. And would you, would you go to Europe, the United States? Or if you were, if you were 19 in China? Would you just stay in China? Well, right. What's a better place to to be part of the scientific process? Yeah. Well, I you know I I one of the interesting aspects about what we you know what you and I call new space is certainly there's the entrance of entrepreneurs into this sector and what does it take to be an entrepreneur? You know, it takes uh, you know fifty, a hundred million, two hundred million dollars to build a company. You know, that's focused on uh, space objectives. Um, you know, how many countries have that kind, that level of resources where they could say, hey, we want to be part of uh, of the of the space business and not necessarily part of the space business, meaning, oh, we're going to partner with NASA. But what are we going to do individually as a uh, as a country? Um, many times I give talks uh, about 
what's happening in the U.S. And you could say that space is being pushed from the federal level down to the state level, with California, Texas, Florida, New York uh, doing about space. You've got Kentucky space, you know, and you can uh, even have space efforts out of Vermont. I mean, there was an announcement for a group out of Maine that's, you know, launching one of their first uh, Saudi rockets. Um, yeah. But in the U.S., you can rank states in terms of GDP. You can compare that GDP ranking, uh, you know, around the globe. And I think we've seen Mexico uh, develop their own space agency. Or Australia just came out with their space agency. Israel did a, um, you know, out of the Google Lunar X Prize, did a lunar lander. They're going to go back. Uh, they're going to redo their lunar program and uh, focus on, on going to the moon. And I think there are many countries around the world that can say, hey, we want to get into the space business, whether it's doing small satellites or something larger. You can, there are a whole bunch of different price points. And you know, companies like Bigelow were focused on, hey, we're going to build a, a microgravity habitat in Leo. Would your country, whether it's uh, UAE or, or some other group, uh, want to you know, fund a, uh, a laboratory UAE's, you know, done a, a successful mission to, uh, to Mars. Um, so, so, so the, I'm just trying to think of this whole thing from, and by Leo, you mean low earth orbit, low earth orbit. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm just trying to think of this from the perspective of the average American middle-class person, right? Then I'm trying to think of what their perspective of, uh, of space in general, in your mind, what do we have to make sure that those people know what space is? Because I feel like there's a lot of old image, imagery, right, in this. Space shuttles, big government-funded programs, exploration, Hubble Space Telescopes. But besides Apollo and everything that came from NASA, mm -hmm. there really, there's not, I mean, new space is new in terms of some of the people and projects, but commercial space has come in step with NASA from the beginning. Isn't that right? Well, I, yes. I mean, that that's, you know, it's, it's the government that allows you to operate in space, much like the government allows you to do almost anything, right? People want to, people want to say, oh, there's no role for government. Well, anybody that's had to deal with intellectual property and the laws that protect intellectual property know that government is required for the successful functioning of a capitalist system. There is no laissez-faire without government because government provides the rules and regulations. If you stop somewhere and you've like blown through a stoplight, uh, you know, that stoplight is there to help the flow of traffic and to protect other people. You know, people that are crossing the street, for instance, from yeah. getting in a car. Those are examples of federal regulations. So it's the, you know, it's the, the governments that we live with that uh, structure, uh, um, you know, what you can and cannot do. You can't broadcast at any arbitrary frequency that you want. You have to, you know, um, you have to clear right. that with the FCC. Right. You can't just take your drone and fly it wherever you want. Uh, you've got to clear that with the with the FAA. So there are government structures that, you know, protect third parties. And, you know, if you don't protect third parties, you can't insure payloads. You can't, uh, you know, you, you, the insurance markets don't function. And general commerce, not in the 20th century, but commerce dating back to the Middle Ages, um, you know, uh, exceeds because there are, uh, you know, protections. 
So who are the, you know, if I, I'm using the word IBM in the nicest way possible, I, but I mean, who are the IBM players in what we would call commercial space that people would know? Because I think one of the things you talked about was big science with, um, with communications and collaboration, and there's so much geosensing, telecommunications, all the GPS satellites, stuff that, you know, when you, when you call up an Uber, you don't realize, like, which just wouldn't be possible with all the commercial space infrastructure that's been going on, not necessarily behind the scenes, but definitely put behind, I think, a lot of the end products people use, right? So, right. like, what does it take to get something like Sirium XM radio? That's something you just comes with your new car and you don't think about it, or GPS satellites yeah. to make Google Maps work. Yeah, I think, I think uh, Sirius and XM is an interesting case because those were two companies that set out to broadcast radio signals from space so that they could have a much larger footprint. In the end, those two companies merged so that they could provide kind of a synergistic structure that uh, would allow uh, the overall company to, uh, to succeed. And you know, even with the formation of NASA, I think the emphasis has always been on what are the commercial applications of the space business. Clearly, there are defense reasons for being in space, but you'd like to think that there are uh, commercial applications. And people have really been working this for uh, for a number of, um, for decades, since the beginning of the beginning of the space program. And uh, AT&T was very successful with the first, um, uh, you know, intercontinental uh, satellite uh, link such that you could, you know, beam signals across the country and uh, and around the globe. Um, so communication satellites have been, uh, you know, an obvious boom, and not just for uh, uh, telephone signals and radio signals, but then also for television broadcasts and uplinks and, uh, and downlinks. In the last 50 years, we've seen uh, all the technology developed that allows you to support uh, the commercial industries. Most recently, uh, you know, I would say since the formation of, uh, of Planet Labs, we've seen uh, technologies associated with the cell phone industry, you know, the, the commoditization, I mean, the commoditization of payloads, but also the economies of scale associated with the semiconductor industry. What's, what's, Planet, what's Planet Labs? Uh, Planet Labs is a group that started out of uh, NASA Ames, focused on small satellite technology and what they wanted to do was build a 200 plus constellation of satellites that could take a snapshot of the earth on a daily basis. If you look at traditional um, satellite imaging capabilities, you know, say, you know, 10 years, 10 years ago, um, you'd get a, you'd say, hey, I want to get an image of a region. It would have to be scheduled. It would eventually, you know, happen, whether it was good weather or not, the picture would be taken and you know, it would, it would uh, you'd you'd end up getting a you know a package in the mail that says here's your here's your data, and that took a process of of weeks. Um, and then what was the ready access to that? And Planet thought, you know, given the small satellite technology and imaging technology, that we should be able to bang out a bunch, you know, uh, uh, essentially 200 identical satellites that could cover the globe and take a snapshot of the Earth uh, on a daily basis. We haven't really had, we've never had the capability to take a global snapshot of the planet on a daily basis. Of course, there will be those things you're like, oh, I know um, there are things I, I know I want to look at. I want to look at uh, the 
the shipment of oil and coal around the globe. I want to see cargoes getting loaded up. I want to see oil being deposited in, uh, in reservoirs. And um, I also want to see, you know, parking lots, how, how much traffic do we see during the day, those sorts of things. But I suspect that there's probably a bunch of discovery science that you would that you just didn't expect to see. Because anytime you look right. at anything in a new way, you start to see things that uh, you didn't expect just because the you know, human imagination can only do so much. And you're always surprised by by what what you find in nature. And so Planet gives you an opportunity to look for those things. And Planet was one of the first companies to take small satellite technology and scale it up. And since then, there have been a, a number of companies we've seen over the last 10 years that are focused on on Earth's observations. And it's like, I want to see what things looked like yesterday. Well, there's an archive that you can log into and uh, download that section of the globe that you uh, you want to look at. You know, people are focused on not just observations in the optical, but also in the infrared. And then using sophisticated technologies like synthetic aperture radar that, uh, you know, is allowed to uh, give you um, is a technique to look underneath the foliage of jungles, perhaps some portion of uh, ground penetrating radar. And, uh, you know, today companies like uh, Spire are looking to interpret what they call GPS occultation signals, which is mm. the GPS signals that we're talking about, transit through, trans, uh, transit through the atmosphere. The signal is somewhat distorted by the Earth's atmosphere and the effects of the atmosphere, both temperature and humidity, and you can interpret that. They kind of have an additional input into uh, into weather models. That's pretty so, cool. So, you know, and there's, there's a lot of new ideas i mean when you start doing stuff all of a sudden you start coming up with new ideas about how to use that technology and i think that's where we are right now is people are still saying well you know how could we use the uh, small satellites leo environment to provide better measurements of the planet a better idea of what's happening on our uh, on our planet and and keeping an eye on on things and this is technology that's had, you know, been available through the defense industry for decades, you know, literally decades since right. the Cold War. Um, but now it's, you know, perhaps finding a home within uh, commercial sectors. So this is the uh, the thing I'm trying to understand, which is it seems like, like you said, with the defense industry, these these technologies, although some of them gotten smaller and better and cheaper because of because of terrestrial innovation like cell phones and. Um, innovations on the ground have really helped innovation in space. But there seems to be a pretty healthy economy of commercial companies doing sustainable businesses, launching satellites for a long time. What's changed? It's probably economies, it's probably economies of scale that people will say, well, you know, is there renewed enthusiasm for space in Silicon Valley? You know, no, that's not the case because Silicon Valley investors haven't changed. Silicon Valley investors are looking for a standard model that they've used, uh, you know, f since uh, since the '80s, since venture capital community uh, began. That said, you know, I want to put a hundred million dollars to work and create a billion-dollar company out of that, and do it with various tranches of funding. And so, entrepreneurs, there are those entrepreneurs that are, you know, mere mortal entrepreneurs, planets, higher, uh, uh companies where you've got good technologies. And you're building a company based on that, and you can do uh, you can 
retire risk and demonstrate success with tranches of funding that are measured in millions of millions of dollars through the rideshare program with small satellites you could buy space on an existing launch and deploy your small satellites as a much larger payload was being deployed simul, uh, simultaneously these days the number of small payloads has grown such that companies like spaceflight industries can buy an entire ride from spacex and deploy a whole host of of satellites that are built not only here in the u.s but also elsewhere around the around the globe so it's a a, a global movement but uh, with regard to the, the business model um, it doesn't take hundreds of millions of dollars to build a space company. You can build it gradually, and you can build it gradually, much like you build any other Silicon Valley startup with tranches of uh, a few million dollars and then tens of millions of dollars, and then go from there. Seed and Series A and Series B and so forth. So companies like, I think there's this cadre of people and projects that have really captured the public imagination. Definitely with Virgin Galactic and the space tourism aspect of things, um, you know, that's still plodding along and it's accelerated in the last mm -hmm. couple of years. But why do you think this captures the, the imagination of people all over the world? And, and, and you mentioned you don't really think that's changed that much. You think that's been pretty stable. Why do you say that? Uh, yeah. you don't think it's, well, I don't think it's... Um, I, I mean, I think, people's I think people's enthusiasm for space has um, remained, uh, remained constant, mm. um, you know, uh, and many of the entrepreneurs that you see in the new space sector, you know, have always had some enthusiasm for making space work, uh, work for them. I mean, when you look at, um, it's, it's hard to imagine what the, well, it's, <laughs> it's easy to imagine what the surface of Mars looks like but uh you know nasa missions to mars have really put a uh, firm um, understanding of what that environment uh of what that environment is um and uh the new horizons mission out to out to pluto i mean i i hope that there's a greater awareness of the earth's role earth's place within uh within our our solar system some of it is is a bit abstract uh, as I think everybody knows that the Earth, you know, the Earth orbits the Sun, and it's not that the Sun orbits the, uh, it's not the Sun orbits the Earth. But uh, you'd think so. You'd like to say you'd like to think so. I, I could probably point you to some groups online that are still really serious about the opposite. Yeah, there's always there's always yeah there's always the, the flat, flat Earth Society. But I, I kind of feel that the flat Earth Society is really really just trying to get a rise out of everybody, and uh, and I think what's different about the 21st century than the 20th century is that in the 20th century, space was merely a, uh, a spectator sport for most people. You sat on the couch, you watched, you know, what was NASA's latest manned mission, um, you know, shuttle missions or the ISS operations uh, today. And you're like, well, how can I get, how can I get involved in this? You know, do I want to join a big company and push paper? Um, and I think, the, the role of small satellites and said, hey, you know, for a relatively different price point, a price point that's consistent with Silicon Valley startups, you can build and fly uh, hardware, uh, build and fly hardware in space. NASA's tune has also changed where they're not like, oh, you know, we're trying to um, 
uh, Coke, Coca-Cola or Pepsi building a soda, soda fountain in space, let's work with companies like Made in Space, an early stage company that was focused on doing an additive manufacturing in low earth orbit. And today there are you know, several other companies that are doing, uh, that are working to do additive manufacturing. And I think NASA has embraced the opportunities of entrepreneurs, you know, has created opportunities for entrepreneurs to work on places like the International Space Station. They see it as their their mandate that not just, you know, big uh, defense companies can have access to the ISS, but how can we open this up to a broader, you know, let's say supply chain and nurture that either through, um, you know, funded space flights or, you know, a certain segment of astronaut time to do that. And let's let's open this up and see if we can get more innovation in that uh, in that sector. How is how is uh, people like agencies like NASA and the ESA, how they handled this transition? Because, I mean, I can imagine that these are professionals, experts who kind of put their stamp on space flight and innovation, engineering and, and, and yeah. physics. Um, you know, was this a welcome collaboration or was this a rocky start when they started seeing all these people popping up with, like you said, 10 million, $100 million tranches of money trying to get to space? You know, were mm-hmm. these, were, were they, what kind of role did they initially play? What was the reaction and, and well, that changed over the years? You know, with established companies, um, they always like to create a barrier to entry, right? A barrier to entry means that, you know, if you're a fan of Michael Porter, and the Harvard School of Business, there's Porter's book on competition. And, you know, competition can come from many places, but uh, uh, what you'd like to do is you'd like to build a barrier to entry to keep your competitors out. And, you know, that works for a while, but the overall health of the U.S. economy, um, you know, you can build border walls around the country and keep out good ideas, but eventually those good ideas are gonna come back uh, through some other channel. And unless you're innovating, um, you know, this is sort of an act of creative destruction, you're probably going to lose out in the long term. And, you know, if you look at the, uh, uh, you know, Dow Jones Industrial Average, right, the, the number of companies that have been there, you know, the, the average, the, uh, the uh, index exists and they're constantly changing, they're constantly changing, but... You know, the, yeah. cha- the mix of companies that make the Dow Jones Industrial Average change over a factor of, uh, you know, over over time. So um, NASA needs to do the same thing. They need to allow innovation in this sector. And I think they've they've seen that SpaceX um, is, you know, the poster child for innovation in in aerospace. If you look at uh, the amount of money that's flowed into SpaceX, it's on the order of a couple of billion dollars. I think they just did a two billion dollar uh, funding round. But if you look at the top, you know, I want to say the top eight, the top 10 defense companies and how much they pay out in dividends per year. Uh, those companies pay out, you know, over about $8 billion in dividends. Yeah. I mean, space is still a small player when it comes to venture capital. It's not like it's pulling down buku amounts of amounts of money. SpaceX and OneWeb uh, have kind of dominated uh, this, uh, dominated the, investment space for new space sector but you know for established companies these companies pay out uh you know a good chunk of change in dividends and as warren buffett says you know you pay dividends when you can't figure out what else to do with the company so you know what else to do with the money 
And so for SpaceX to come out and best an entire field of the aerospace industry with a reusable launch vehicle that many people thought, hey, that's not going to be possible. But, so you know, can, hats we dissect, off. <laughs> can we dissect that a little bit? Um, why, you know, because I have a lot of questions about SpaceX, not just because um, because they're, what they've been able to do, but how do they do it? And how have they brought the public along in such a way where, you know, their SpaceX launches are almost like rock concerts, right? I mean, you don't typically mm -hmm. see this when the next community, when the, uh, I can't remember the last communication satellite that was launched, right, that had a countdowns on TV and stuff. So there seems to be several aspects to their success. One is, uh, you know, their financial success, their engineering success. But what is, how are they able to capture people's imaginations? Well, I, I think by doing, you know, certainly for Elon Musk as an entrepreneur, to say, you know, be fixed in his view as to this is what's going to be possible. And fundamentally by working like hell. I mean, I, you know, SpaceX is able to pull down the top few percent of all the engineering school, all the graduates out of the engineering schools and combine both, you know, old school space people with a whole bunch of, uh, of young, enthusiastic engineers that want to go out and change uh, and change the industry. And there are many people that work for SpaceX that uh, work for SpaceX for a couple of years and say, well, thank you very much. Mm. I think I'd rather go do something else because I, it's make no bones about it. It's a freaking pressure cooker over at SpaceX. It's a you know, if you've been a part of a NASA mission, you know that those things are pressure cookers in and of themselves. What do you mean? No, I, I mean, just in terms, just in terms of the number of hours hmm. that that people put in. You know, there's people will say, "Hey, there's supposed to be a work balance life, work a, a work life balance, or something like that." And uh, you know, the truth is, is there 24 hours in a day, and you got to make the most of your time while while working. I mean, there are plenty of NASA engineer stories where, you know, they're working on a program and, you know, their family life's gone to, you know, quote, hell in a handbasket uh, yeah. because they're working all the time. So, yeah. you know, how, you know, not not being part of the SpaceX family here, you know, I can imagine it's the same pressures. And if you're a young person that's not building your family, um, you know, you got to, you don't have as many demands at home and you can dedicate your, uh, dedicate your time to, working uh, working to build out uh, the space industry so um and the, the other the other part about that is a reluctance and and again michael porter you know talks about um you know the innovators dilemma and what happens is you have established companies that kind of are making a good profit they're paying dividends they're pretty much fat and happy and you know what's the point of innovating why why upset the apple cart uh, kodak got out innovated by the whole digital camera industry. Where's Kodak today? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, when you have innovation, if you're not embracing innovation, you may end up just as a story in the, in the history books. And so the aerospace sector is not, it's not just, you know, what's been proven, but the industry itself excels. I mean, the industry itself survives on using what's flown previously. And that's so they're reluctant to, reluctant to, you know, adopt innovation. Well, that's one thing I want to talk to you about because uh, one one aspect of, of space flight is just getting things up there. I think no one's going to argue with the fact that like we need communication satellites, geosensing satellites, we want internet. That story is one that's easily accepted. 
but um, it's like, like we get it. Like I think everyone gets it. It's, but you know, if you pull out your cell phone, use Google Maps. You're like, yeah, I'm using space right now, and I like mm -hmm. it. It's an important thing to invest in, either from a government standpoint or from a commercial standpoint. But why is it so damn hard to get stuff up there? I mean, if you just look at the, and, I, and I'm yeah. looking at this from, you know, you get something in the, the 200 mile orbit. 200 miles is a three hour drive, right? Like sure. it's not that long. Sure, but that's because yeah, that's that's because you're moving along the surface of the Earth, you're moving across a uh, you know equal potential surface. You're not yeah. really doing a lot of work. Anyone that's anyone that's got plans at the beginning of the year for working out and going to the gym knows that working out is a lot of work, and a lot of people don't finish their workout routines. We'll start in January. They'll kind of get through uh, February, and then March will come by. Like, well, you know, I think I can take a break. And then by the time December rolls around, they're like, you know, I had big plans about going to the gym. That's because you're taking those weights and you're lifting them up from the ground, up above your head repeatedly. You're doing a lot of work. So anybody that's kind of had a failed exercise program uh, knows that doing work is is hard. And lifting anything out of orbit, lifting anything from the surface of the Earth up into orbit is the same kind of deal. You got to do a serious amount of work the other part about this is that you can go to the airport right you go to your local whatever whether it's chicago o'hare or bwi or whatever and watch the airplanes take off listen to a 747 uh roll down the runway and take off and it's you know it's carrying hundreds of passengers over to some unknown destination then go down to uh florida and watch one of the Falcon 9 launches, just a Falcon 9 launch by itself, and listen to that engine as it rips through the sky. And you just the sound of it tells you that there's about a factor of 10 in the amount of work that those engines are doing to get it up to orbit. And that's just the Falcon 9. We're not even talking about the Falcon Heavy, which have has you, got three. Have you been to one of these uh, launches? I, I was down in... Uh, Probably in the last one, I was was probably in 2016. I was invited by uh, my friend Richard David from uh, New Space Global. He said, "Hey, we're going to have a SpaceX launch party down there." It was great down by the beach in Florida. It was an eye-opening experience because you can you can watch the launch on on TV, but it's not the same being there. And what you find with SpaceX this year, SpaceX has done uh, 24 launches in a year. Next year, they're going to be doing you know, 50 plus is part of their schedule. And so that's pretty much every week. So one of the difficulties of going down to a launch is say you go down to the shuttle and you're like, hey, it's going to happen this. And, you know, the launch was canceled. I think going forward here in 2020 and beyond, you can go down to Florida and you can check out a launch. And if you're down there for a week or two weeks, you're probably going to see a launch uh, in 2021 and you know, 2022. So while you're planning your family vacation, definitely uh, see if you can schedule it with one of the SpaceX launches and just listen, just listen to the difference between a rocket launch and an airplane. You've been in this business for a, a long time from as, as a thought leader. Did it, did yeah. being there in person, seeing it, feeling it, experiencing it, how did it change your view? It's fundamentally a controlled explosion. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's all it is. I mean, you've got uh, fuel, you've got oxidizer, you combine the two 
in the engine and the rocket engine. And, uh, you know, through the miracle of combustion, uh, you have a, you know, a gigantic explosion and your goal is to use, use that energy in a constructive fashion. There have been many, uh, you know, you can go through YouTube and you can see many of the uncontrolled uh, disassembly of, uh, of rockets, um, you know, some of which have been absolutely tragic, like the, the Challenger disaster. But fundamentally, technology is about controlling the forces of nature, even the steam engine. Steam engine, uh, you had to, the boiler pressure and all of the technology, the, the locomotive that you may take for granted. There's an incredible yeah. amount of technology in order to harness that, in order to do the work necessary to move tons of cargo from point A to point B across the country. So in the 19th century, we had the development of the steam engine. In the 20th century, we had the development of the jet engine. And in the 21st century, you know, you're seeing, uh, you know, c- continued development of the uh, of the rocket engine. And but that's the thing that I'm actually curious about, because I mean, I mean, the the argument about just fighting gravity makes a lot of sense. Obviously, the physics of that's just that's just a difficult problem to solve. That's not going away, going away anytime soon. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, I just, you know, it's a weird but SpaceX because you're sitting there watching well, their launches on YouTube and you're, the launch itself is impressive from a technical standpoint. What's really, really fun to watch is the is the return, right? The landing, right. and that's just amazing because like, how the heck did they do that? How do they do that? Right. Is that the real right. that re, not just the reusability that's the real, of the turnaround? But is that the real piece de resistance of SpaceX? That, their ability to land that thing back that's, down. Yeah, that's. I mean, what makes SpaceX different from the other launch companies is that they'll have a first stage first stage booster that they can re, reuse. I mean, the intent is that an individual booster would be used a hundred times with routine maintenance every every 10 flights. And today there are a number of SpaceX Falcon 9 Block 5 boost, boosters that have been used, you know, close to half a dozen, half a dozen times. And uh, nobody, you know, as they'll say, nobody um, builds a 747, flies it across the ocean and then disposes of them. The proposal thing, what makes the aviation industry work is the reuse of aircraft. What's going to make the space industry work is the reuse of the of the launch vehicle. And SpaceX is focused not just on uh, um, reuse of the, the first stage, but also uh, capturing um, the, the fairing uh, later on, which is another uh, part of the program. And and you look at the amount of fuel that's involved in a launch, it's only a couple of, you know, $300,000 worth of worth of fuel. Um, the price for a launch, for Falcon 9 launch is, you know, probably on the ballpark of $60, $60 million. If you can get the cost, the revenue coming in from a launch is $60 million. If you get the cost of goods down to about $6 million, then that's a pretty big margin that you've got on the launch. You're basically... Um, you know, profiting, uh, you know, well, I'd say, you know, 50, $50 million per launch. You can get all the other costs down the reuse costs on this, but that's where SpaceX is headed such that the Falcon 9 ends up being a cash cow for the company. How much of this though is real innovation versus, I mean, there's no undramatic, non-dramatic way that rockets fail, right? right? It's always theater. Um, and hopefully no one gets hurt, but there's some part of me that says, well, we have seen this before. 
Like, there, all these companies are getting a lot of attention for doing something that was done in the 60s. It feels well, like that, but is that, is that just a superficial observation versus an actual? I, you know, we, we've never, we, as, as you know, we've never seen first stages that have come down and landed on their own. We've never seen pairs of boosters, like from the Falcon Heavy, that came down and simultaneously landed. And, you know, when it first happened, everyone's like, wow, what was that? And today... It, you know, it ends up being almost commonplace, but it certainly, it certainly isn't. And, um, you know, that's part of the SpaceX secret sauce, uh, you know, so to speak, about how to build, uh, how to build and fly a booster. They've got their ocean-going vessels that serve as landing pads. Um, that whole system works. And, you know, perhaps even with uh, Starlink, the whole thing will work even uh even better, providing continuous, uh, you know, data link uh, between uh, the drone ship, the uh, landing vehicle, and the mission operations center. So, if, if I'm an yeah, entrepreneur but, uh, and I want to start a, a technology company of some sort, and I just need, you know, part of my business needs my technology to be in low Earth orbit, I have options now. Basically, I've got more options coming to get my stuff into space. Virgin, yeah, Virgin, Virgin Orbit just had their first successful launch. Um, with their with their air launch air launch system, um, you know Blue Origin also is getting into the business. So you know you've got you know the the, the billionaires of the world, whether it's uh, Bezos or Musk or or Sir Richard Branson, working on launch capabilities. Why is that? Um, and you then think? you have other companies. Well, it's it's access it's access to capital, even um, depending on depending on who you are, right? I mean with with Jeff Bezos and the valuation of Amazon, I believe you can just sell some Amazon stock fund the company uh, by itself. With uh, uh, SpaceX, um, they've relied upon um, you know the uh, groups like Peter Thiel and the Founders Fund and others, DFJ, Draper Fisher, uh, Jurvetson, Steve Jurvetson's connections, uh, you know, to fund uh, to fund SpaceX and with Virgin, Virgin, uh, or Virgin Galactic and Virgin Orbit, you know, there was a time when uh, the Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund came in and helped Sir Richard Branson. So, the, you know, success of an entrepreneur depends upon your access to capital. And your access to capital can be a friends and family round from, you know, your college graduates or it can, right. you know, be a friends and family round from those that exited off of your last great startup. So, you know, the, and this brings the question of um, this balance between two motivations to, to get to space. And, and also, I think it segues us into an interesting conversation about, uh, to be had about um, manned spaceflight or human spaceflight, right? Because it's, how, what are the motivations here for, for Blue Origin stuff? Because, yeah, part of it's the commercial aspect of, you know, there's a, there's a sustainable business model that mm -hmm. exists, probably several. Right, uh, and not sure what the timeline of those are, but it does seem like there's the old the old pilot uh, adage, right? It's like you know what's the what's the name of the force that keeps planes in the air? And it's, mm -hmm. it's money, right? It's yeah. it's not lift, it's money, right. and it just seems like each rocket's burning a lot of cash, even though you said about the fuel. But it's like how much of that burn is going toward what typically the government would have funded before and things like big science or exploration or just 
just kind of blue sky thinking stuff. Well, What's the sustainable business model of going to Mars and anywhere near the even, next 30 well, years? I mean, even, even, looking at, even looking at NASA, I mean, what's the sustainable business model for NASA? Part of it, it's the Cold War. Uh, part of it was uh, the money that the government was putting into uh, launch capabilities to deal with the threat of a, the threat of a Cold War and the development of uh, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles and I was talking to somebody and said, you know, part of the manned spaceflight program was to make those vehicles reliable. If you had a uh, essentially, a, you know, a Redstone missile that was certified for human spaceflight, that meant it was ready. That meant it wasn't going to blow up on launch. That yeah. meant that, you know, you were absolutely sure, you know, if you're flying people on them, I mean, you're flying the, you know, the Gemini, the, uh, the Mercury astronauts on the uh, Mercury Redstone. Um, that you know that there's trust that that thing is actually going to work. And so that adds to kind of the deterrence formula that not only are you talking about uh, missiles that have uh, a payload, payload delivery capability, but you're so sure of those missiles working that you can actually fly people on them. I'm just thinking um, from the investor so, standpoint, it's like we know that well, some percentage of the, the, the money burn here that you're asking me to give you is obviously to create, yeah, yeah, to be a launch you, partner for all these entrepreneurs. But I realize, hey, you, you want know, to get to Mars and just go roam around because you think it's it's a great experience for well, you to have, which is a valid that, experience. Yeah, that, yeah, but yeah, but going, going to Mars, I mean, that's uh, that, that in itself has its own, um, uh, there are a bunch of challenges that you need to face. Right, and in particular the radiation exposure, and plus once you get there, um, you know it's it's great to do flags and footprints on Mars that you've you've gotten there, and you're able to return samples back to to Earth for analysis. But you know what's it going to take to set up a colony on Mars? I mean, if you've, I, I would say anybody that has an interest in going to space should spend some time working with uh, what at one time was Antarctic Support Associates, all the group that works down at the South Pole. You want to, you know, know what long-term exposure is and, uh, and uh, um, uh, um, you know, conditions of duress, go work down at the pole. You fly into the pole, you can work down there. During the summer, it's nice. Actually, during the winter is when it gets to be really cold. Um, you know, it gets really to be, cold. Uh, minus, eight, yeah, minus, minus 80 cold. degrees Fahrenheit because there's an inversion layer down by the ice. So it's colder down at the ice than it is up, uh, up above, above that. Um, well, I, I, it seems I guess, like no. undoubtedly space has always become a platform for innovation that can, I mean, the, the number of spin-off technologies and things we use, well, I have no doubt about that at all. I'm, I'm actually very much for that ability, just personally, I, you know, to have that experience mm -hmm. of, if that, if those experiences of low Earth orbit, interplanetary travel are available, I'm really wondering how much and how close, you know, am, am I? Because well, it's like right now I can yeah. pull up Amazon and watch The Expanse. I don't know if you've seen the show, but there's some part of that show that just really paints this picture of, of humans um, just traveling back and forth through well, different factions of the solar system. Yeah, there's a, you know, the, uh, the economy is based on natural resources. And we've in this century, we've reached kind of a tipping point of the use of those natural resources and the, uh, you know, eco balance, uh, you know, ecosystem balance uh, on the planet. If, you know, we're going to continue to grow because GDP is probably, you know, closely linked to energy consumption um, and, you know, using energy efficiently or those kinds of things. But to, continue to grow the economy of the planet, 
we've got to have a different way of of doing this. And you might say that some of the natural resources we need for the continued growth of uh, you know human civilization are you know within our solar system. The nice thing about our solar system is there are no indigenous people that can lay claim. We are the indigenous. Everyone on this planet is the indigenous person of the resources in our in our solar system. How we're able to take advantage of those is kind of is kind of TBD. And um, yeah. You know, I would also go back to uh, when you do things, you start to have new ideas. And, uh, you know, nanotechnology was a time in the early 21st century where we were funding nanotech labs all around the country. You know, today we've got one microgravity lab and that's the ISS. Nobody just says, hey, let's just build one nanotech lab, you know, in the center of the country somewhere there. And everyone can submit proposals as to what the research will do. And then we'll have a bunch of laboratory scientists that review you know, that do that work for them. Yeah. Everyone yeah. knows that you got to go in the lab and, and do the work that's necessary in order to figure out how nature responds. We don't have that today. Uh, for microgravity research, and we need to have that. So we need to have more microgravity laboratories in low Earth orbit where scientists and graduate students and research scientists, commercial corporate research scientists get up there and figure out, you know, what is the best way to use the microgravity environment for the development of technologies that benefit people of Earth? I'm very aware of, you know, Garner's hype cycle, right? And especially when it comes to things funded by venture capital, and it, there tends to be, especially in the space realm, a lot of futurists. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean more just there's a lot of people thinking big, mm -hmm. right? And who have, like you said, have access to capital, a track record of ideas, and are willing to build teams, right, um, mm -hmm. to, to pursue them. So, I, but it's, it's hard to suss out exactly how close we are in these different projects, because I don't know where... Um, it's like people are talking about here we're going to do this versus here's we're actually with the technology we oh. can get to. For example, so could we talk about things like, you know, like the Bigelow Hotels is one thing. That's been mm -hmm. a concept that's been there for a while, yet, yeah. you know, can you just give me a, a, an idea of when I'm looking at the race of technologies, where is everybody in terms of human spaceflight in orbit, uh, going to the moon or going to Mars, asteroid mining? Like where are all these? Are, is everything trudging along? Or if something stalled, or what's human, the landscape? Yeah, I think human spaceflight. Human spaceflight is a tough nut to crack because even the astronauts on the ISS, um, you know, when they get up there, they're like, you know, motion sickness, and then being in a microgravity environment, and you know, your spine expands, and yeah. you know, one of the astronauts, and he's like, oh, I used to have a compression device that would push down on my head, so it would compress my spine, so I would sleep. Um, there are probably a number of stories, of, you know, within the astronaut pool that perhaps aren't circulated about oh, yeah. how difficult it is to work in a microgravity environment for a long period of time, you know, six months to, to a year. And those are the records that you have uh, uh, today. But, you know, like with all things, you're like, you got to figure out a way to to make that work. And you, you figure out that way by doing it and uh, inventing ways to solve those problems. I like to think that you know, within the commercial spaceflight industry. If you look at the aviation industry in the 20th century, um, you could look at, I just was watching something a little while ago. I'm a big fan of Wand Trip and the development of Pan Am. Pan Am, yeah. It's a great story. 
Great story with him in charge. Bad story with everyone else in charge. Well, right. Yeah. But that's just kind of the, you might say, what other companies do you know better uh, that fall under that mold? I mean, how's Apple doing these days now that Steve Jobs uh, is no longer with us? How do you think they're doing? Um, I, you know, people are still buying Apple products. I have my Apple watch that I use all the time as I go to the gym. Um, so, uh, but you know, are they, are they going to, uh, you know, go the distance here? They seem to have locked in a number of, uh, number of customers that are wedded to their, wedded to their products. And who knows, maybe Apple will even come out with an automobile. They should be producing luxury automobiles by doing that. Even, even Tesla was talking about selling to Apple at, at some point. I but, saw that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I just you I, just I know think, how the Apple car is going to be, right? It's like it's you know it's like but, every single, it's like oh you want the charger for that? Oh, that's another five, you know five thousand dollars. Jesus, doesn't it just come with some of this stuff? You know the ports right. won't work. And, well, but I think you can you can look at the, birth, the rise of aviation throughout the twentieth century. Uh, out of World War out of World War One, we had the barnstorming period, and uh, biplanes, and uh, you might say that the role of the Department of Defense in yeah. boosting the aviation industry and creating the commercial aviation aviation industry that we had at the end of the uh, 20th century. But, you know, there was a, there was number one was people's sense of safety when, uh, uh, you know, in flying in airplanes. And, you know, you might say that Charles Lindbergh and his flight across the Atlantic, here's, you know, one guy who's flying in a single engine airplane and flies across the Atlantic probably changed people's mindset about what aviation safety looked like. And Pan Am um, defined what commercial aviation was going to look like, not only with, um, you know, Lindbergh's role with, uh, with Juan Tripp and building Pan Am, but then the aircraft that were developed under uh, Igor Skorsky, and then, in, you know, including in new technologies like radio in order to help with navigation and communications uh, during the flight. Radio was not, you know, radio was not born. It was, it was sort of simultaneous with the, with the aviation industry, but it wasn't obvious how you're going to get a huge <laughs> radio, you know, like on a ship's radio out of a steamship. How are you going to get all of that into a compact form factor that you could fly on an airplane? And today, you know, you wouldn't think of, uh, of aviation without, without radios, but that was an innovation that was pioneered by uh, by Pan Am. They said, you know, this is how we're going to need radio beacons in order to navigate, and we're going to need uh, radio in order to communicate with our pilots and figure out, you know, what's going, what's going yeah. on and how, how we can be assistance. The innovation landscape is, I think, just one of the great triumphs of, uh, I mean, it's the, it's, it's the answer to that the question that always comes up, which is why are we investing in space when there's always stuff at home? And that's the, all the, it's like, no, it's, it's clearly the right answer well, to invest in space because you get everything else at home using space as a platform that lets you innovate and, and spin things out. Well, you might, you know, I think people might, people might say, you know, why are we spending taxpayers money on, on space? And you might say, well, why are we spending taxpayers money on a lot, on a lot of things? And yeah. what are we, and, and I would, I would say, what is the ROI uh, associated with the monies that we're spending, what's the, you know, and any any topic, not to turn this into a political diatribe on things, but you know, investors are focused on ROI. You know, taxpayers should be focused on ROI too. What are you getting? What are you getting for your money? Out of all the things that the government's spending, it's clearly we all benefit from having uh, good roads. We all benefit from having 
stable utilities uh, infrastructure. We all benefit from laws that protect intellectual property and uh, um, you know, the rule of law throughout the country. This is the, the $1 trillion question is how you measure value. So it's difficult because, I mean, it's, uh, I would, I would, for me personally, like the, the look at the Hubble Space Telescope. How do you measure the ROI on being able to capture the imagination of science and technology to a billion people, right? For the price of a Starbucks coffee in the morning or something is whatever you know whatever it costs to do that. That to me is well worth the effort of just in terms of the science and you know the science is worth the yeah. effort, right? So I think there's the, it's it's difficult to measure some of the the intangibles, and that's why I brought the SpaceX thing because you're right because when those two boosters came down. You know, you just you just like you go to the web. You're like, how do you apply to work for this company, right? Like, it's like your right. next thoughts. Like, I want to be whatever those people are doing. I want to be part of it because they're just doing something cool, right? They're I mean, they're doing something unique. Um, what about commercial space habitats? I mean, where why does the ISS have the monopoly on that right now, and why is that a government project? I, yeah, well, I, I think that's a uh, uh, you know, people in space is is a hard problem, just like people in aviation. Right. I mean, you've got to build vehicles that are safe. You've got to understand uh, the safety, uh, the safety concerns. And then, you know, it's a big cost to, to design and fly and build in low Earth orbit. The one thing you might say, what, you know, ROI for the International Space Station, ROI for the International Space Station is what does it take to build something in low Earth orbit? We build many things on the ground. But what does it take to build things in low Earth orbit? And that's what the ISS has really demonstrated and accomplished, that mm -hmm. all those individual module, modules, they were built on the ground, but they were launched separately and assembled in space. It's pretty clear that you've got to be able to, you can't launch everything you need from the ground. You've got to be able to launch it and assemble it in space uh, in order for, you know, to, to envision, you know, create some vision of the future and that's probably what we've learned on the international space station and not only build it but then also maintain it what does maintenance look what are the things that are going to come you know going to come get you later on and uh, i think we've got a pretty good uh track record for understanding what life is like on the international on the international space station um rather than it being taxpayer funded uh, uh, initiatives, perhaps, you know, Space Station 2.0 was now investor-funded initiatives. He's sort of done enough to, quote, retire the risk, and you can see, you know, where are the opportunities uh, that are in low Earth orbit, and can you go, uh, you know, build, uh, you know, build those additional modules to the International Space Station? I mean, I believe that the existing space station will uh, you know, it's debatable how much how much of it's going to stay in orbit, but you're probably going to expand. Smart money is on decommissioning modules and then expanding them on the International Space Station. You've got a foothold. You've got some real estate in space. Can you? Uh, the Bigelow module is now there. That kind of done an experiment on that. Can you decommission that and free up one of the ports? Are there other ports that people would want to use? Are there modules in the International Space Station that countries no longer need and say want to dispose of can you know can we figure out a way to uh, to refurbish uh, the space station or does it require completely new 
infrastructure can we get there uh, incrementally from the first you know colonial outposts uh, in the new world you know how can you expand from those outposts so Sean, that you bring up a really interesting question here. So decommission those modules. I mean, is there a short term, I'm saying 10 years or something where I just, you know, Ravi Co wants his module right. on there and I'm a private company. And do I, is there, a, is there an existing mechanism where I can go to NASA and apply to have a spot to hook onto? I mean, in other well, words, does it end up being a public dock? I, I think that's, that's still something that the, the NASA guys are working out. There are a couple of companies, you know, NanoRacks is one of them. Axion uh, is another, and um, uh, NASA had recently done a study that included uh, a number of established defense, established, uh, you know, defense contractors and uh, some of these new uh, early stage companies, you know, Blue Origin participated in that. So I think that's something that uh, NASA itself is working through internally of what is the long-term play for the international uh, space station. In some sense, they're kind of behind the curve because, you know, we're looking at 2020 today. This probably should have been a discussion we were having in 2020 and, and I'm sorry, 2000, given the, the rate of change of things. And we are coming up to the engineering lifetime of, yeah. uh, of the ISS. So there are probably a number of internal engineering issues that, um, you know, those people that are outside the immediate circle aren't aren't prevy to at this time, but, uh, you know, something like what we saw of just, you know, deorbiting the ISS is completely the wrong answer in mm -hmm. my, in my opinion. Is that being thrown uh, around? Is that, uh, well, that's people are, I, I, you know, it was thrown around and, you know, under the Bush administration, um, where they're like, Oh, we're just going to decommission the ISS and nobody in their right mind. It's like, you spent a hundred million dollars building the right ISS. Now you're going to decommission it. That makes no, that makes no sense whatsoever in terms of taxpayer yeah. ROI. And um, is that another, I guess, a I would say commercial space uh, advantage where you have some layer of political uh, protection from fickle political uh, enthusiasm, depending on the who's in charge anyone in one moment? Well, um, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure what you uh, um, w well. Um, government spending, you know, really. there's, there, there's always, there's always a role for Washington to play, Washington to play and whatever is, is happening. I mean, Washington will play, you know, in the registration of, uh, frequencies for, you know, uh, for self for the cell phone industry, right. You know, as, as the arbiter of natural resources and how natural resources should be allocated such that, you know, people don't bid on them and then sit on them without using them. I think the mindset in the United States um, historically is that if you have a resource, it should be put to commercial use. Hmm. There's no, there's a, there's a reluctance to have a resource and just sort of let it sit. We see the benefit of that for things like the national park system. And with going to Yosemite is glad that Yosemite is sort of preserved you know, here in California, preserved in its you know original, uh, original state with uh, with half dome and uh, you know, natural forest that's around it, we'd not like it to be just be a gigantic logging camp. Mm -hmm. So, but the, on the other hand, the national forest system is about how can we use the trees that are here in California, you know, to the economic benefit of the community. So, um, you know, I, I think space is the same way. You know, how can we meter out this rather limited resource uh, such that it's the, it's in the best interests 
of you know commercial it serves the commercial potential. So speaking of that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm aware in 2015 of the legislation that that basically the, the, I think the Obama administration had um, shepherded along that had allowed for rights to resources, right, in uh, in outer space uh, that that were that were allotted to whoever had the ability to go and get them. So it was like kind of stake your claim in space and space resources, yeah. and, and those were yours. Is that protection, which I'm assuming is being you know, extended to things like asteroid mining and things like that. Is that legislation, is that, are we seeing just the beginning of future fights that are going to happen? And again, on this landscape, asteroid mining is one of these things where it's just on the, yeah, sure, it's like fusion. It's going to come at some point, you know, it's 20 right. years away. Where are we with, with how we regulate this area? Because everyone keeps saying it's the next trillion dollar industry. And, you know, there's, yeah. a, there's a legal side of that, but also the logistics engineering side to that. Yeah, there, and you know, I, I would defer to the uh, space lawyer podcast that you're going to do in the future here <laughs> on this. But you know, from my from my uh, non legal uh, perspective, there's a difference between what happens in Europe and what happens in the United States. Hmm. That you know, they, I think Europeans tend to formulate uh, regulations prior to there actually being a problem on that, and saying you know, let's let's imagine what might come up and therefore let's put regulations in place. And, and that can be an impediment to the development of, of industry in the United States. You know, it can be that regulations are reactionary. Uh, you know, Upton Sinclair and the jungle talked about the meatpacking industry. And, you know, when things got really out of hand, then the, the federal government comes in and says, okay, you know, people don't think the meat's safe. After reading Upton Sinclair's book, we better do something about this. We better put some regulations in place so that these people yeah. now have confidence. Ralph the Ralph Nader Upton Sinclair phenomena. Yeah, you know, we better have you know, people need to have confidence. And you know, likewise we were talking about aviation, you know, I think Charles Lindbergh's flight kind of gave people confidence that it's safe. <laughs> you know, it's perhaps marginally safe to fly uh, to fly uh, to fly in an airplane. So I honestly um, think that and, dude I think that was a fluke, man. I seriously think that was a fluke. If you read, you know, yeah. Antoine Zhang Zupri's books, his memoirs about flying, it's like those guys went yeah. down all the time, yeah. right? I mean I think Yeah, right. Yeah, right. They, it was yeah, it was it was tough. But uh, you know, Charles Lindbergh, he had his own plane and he was the man in charge. And he's like, here's how we're going to do this. He had his own mindset about what it takes to safely fly across the Atlantic. And of course it took an all nighter. And a lot of people thought, you know, why would a pilot, you know, go through 33 hours of flying? You know, can it actually happen? But, you know, he muscled on through, you know, much like, you know, Musk is sleeping on the floor over at Tesla to make that uh, to make that work. It's that kind of that kind of dedication. So, um, I, I mean, I, I think there are differences between regulations in Europe and regulations in the United States. And, um, you know, the U.S. regulations are perhaps... Uh, reactionary. And that said, I mean, there are things like the Outer Space Treaty that people have to adhere to. Um, you know, it would be interesting to hear from someone to talk about uh, what regulations we have on Mars, because I think the regulations for, um, you know, the the um, Outer Space Treaty uh, speaks to, you know, what you can do when you land on the moon, right? And so because that was in the immediate future, uh, at the time they were formulating the Outer Space Treaty, I don't think there are similar uh, regulations about, uh, you know, colonization and operation on Mars. And, uh, you know, you, you might say there is sort of a 
uh, I want to say gentleman's handshake on contamination of the planet. But as you go to Mars, this is a, a body, a celestial body that has been, um, you know, quote, unmolested by uh, man, you know, the any sort of species from the planet Earth. And now, uh, you know, are you going to accidentally introduce microbes? Uh, so you <laughs> contaminate the biological history of the planet if there is any. You say that I, you know, it's really funny that you say that because the I, the the um, some of the tenets behind the current theories of panspermia, right? I mean, there's, it's funny how much interplanetary exchange there already is, just from asteroid impacts, bolides hitting the ground really, really quickly, you know, really fast, and there's fragments that can reach escape velocity and eventually get captured, you know, by Earth and yeah. so on and so forth. So, I'm, you know, that's one of the big. For me, from a scientific standpoint, just out of curiosity, right. I'm very interested in seeing what's on the subsurface, what's that subsurface structure look like, right? To, in, into a depth that we right. haven't been able to get to yet, like, you know, 10, 20, 30 feet, right. something like well, that. Well, there's, there's sort of Fermi's paradox, which is, you know, if there is life in the universe, how come we haven't heard, heard from it? I would say a subset of that is the paradox is if there's life on Earth, What's the history of life on other bodies uh, in our solar system? What's the, you know, because you're looking at a four, four billion year history of which the first, let's say, half a billion years is relatively, relatively poorly understood. Um, and, you know, Harrison Schmidt has a, a nice uh, discussion about the history, the geological history of the Earth and what history has been wiped out by you know planetary activities and some of that history is captured in the moon i forget what the detail that is but it's basically the first billion years of the solar system so and you yeah. know our, our our solar system is about four and a half billion years so something like 20 percent of it you really don't have a good rack i mean you've got theories but as you look to these other bodies of the solar system you want to understand what is their history right what's the history of Jupiter and Saturn, when did they form and um, where were they when they formed? And then what's the history of, uh, of life uh, on, these other, on these other bodies? To me, the, the paradox is why don't we find any signs of life elsewhere in the solar yeah. system? That's what, you need. That's what you need to look for. I, I personally think there probably is a lot of it. I, but because you know, Fermi's paradox was always you're a good physicist, so you, you'll probably you agree with the fact that there's no real paradoxes in nature, right? It's there's obviously we're missing pieces of the puzzle. We don't really understand it, but right. I think one thing about Fermi's paradox is that it, it refers to that part of the Drake equation that probably is the most important part, right? Which is like, well, how what's the basically the, the lifespan of any intelligent right. civilization enough to be able to create a radio transmitter, right? And that that who knows? That's just not clear. If, if, of all the well, things that are probably more clear, I mean. In the Earth's history, what's amazing at all is that life started pretty quickly after the four and a half billion right. years. I forget the exact number, but I think there's still some parts of Australia where there's just species that are just you know, that are representative of things that were you know bacterial colonies that were living there, and like these bacterial mats. Right. I, I think that's that's another that's another future podcast yeah. for your show. Aside from the space lawyers, yeah. is the evolution, the known evolution of life. Here on Earth, and then what we can expect to see elsewhere. And I think by looking elsewhere uh, throughout the solar system, we can start to put together those pieces of the early history of Earth, which are the keys to the formation of life 
on this planet. We don't have That's a right. lot of insight into, into that period. And we probably have to look elsewhere to see what we can learn about that very early phase of, uh, of, Earth, of Earth's history and of the solar system's history. And single-celled organisms that found anywhere outside of this planet would be one of the greatest monumental discoveries of, you know, yeah. uh, ever, ever, right? I mean, it'd it give insight into our place in the, in the universe. I'm, I'm right. however, however, the astrobiologists that have been, you know, the NASA Ames Astrobiology Institute, I think has been running for about 20 years here. So there are a lot of yeah. scientists that are part of the Astrobiology Institute and, you know, work on saying, well, what is life? What are the signs of life? What are the characteristics of life? How can we observe the signs of life outside of the Earth, but then also for exoplanets? What would be some signatures of life? I mean, here on Earth, oxygen, for instance, is not a stable compound. Oxygen is produced by you know, the plants that we see, the rainforests, the right. uh, conversion of carbon dioxide into uh, into oxygen. Oxygen wants to combine with everything. Anyone that's left, uh, you know, their uh, their grill uh, out in the rain knows that uh, anything, you know, wants to rust. Um, and uh, that's, you know, oxygen eating away at those, uh, you know, reactive oxygen eating away at that uh, metal. And so... Um, you know, oxygen is a sign of uh, of a chemical system that's kind of quote out of balance. Uh, likewise, you know, what are some of the other symbol, uh, uh, signatures uh, for life? Because if you look at exoplanets, you use something like JWST to examine exoplanets and distant stellar systems. Right. Um, what are the things that give you an indication that life life exists there? But I I think as we explore our planetary our solar system, we need to look for like what are the signatures of life elsewhere in our own solar system because to me it's it's very puzzling that the only signature of life we see here uh is is on our planet um which you know some people may say well that's you know by design for instance but you know rejecting um you know in the the hypothesis of intelligent design and saying there's actually got to be a natural phenomenon associated with it because natural phenomenon always seem to win out they seem to win out, and also I think you know it's it's not so crazy of an idea to think that given enough time, molecules arrange themselves in certain patterns, right? Where they where they move and act a certain way. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, I, I that's yeah, you're, that that's definitely one of the biggest questions for someone like me to to try to explore an answer to, but also um, the motivation to actually spend time on Mars. Because I mean, just just my personal thing to me, it looks like a it looks like a barren part of Arizona. So. So basically Arizona, well, it's like people who are like, hey, I want to go hang out on Mars. I'm like, go try hanging out in Arizona in the desert first in, the, in, a, in a dome. Try that for a couple well, of weeks and see how much. I think Mars will probably tell you a lot about the very earliest, the, the earliest history of, of Earth. And, you know, both with Venus and Mars, you can say, OK, well, what are the differences? Compare and contrast the three, yeah. uh, the three rocky planets of the inner solar system and um, what has led to the proliferation of life here on Earth, and uh, how can we ensure that that's the case going forward, not for the next decades, but for on the order of centuries, if not millennia. So if something like a commercial, um, you know, there's a commercial engine that, that really helps drive that science as well, and just returning to this asteroid mining things, I think it's such an interesting, it really pushes the envelope on space ability, right? How close is that? Well, I, I, I think the 21st century space program is going to look a somewhat different 
because one of the large economies of scale that we have today is robotic technology. And that, you know, we've seen technologies in medicine. We've seen, certainly see robotic technologies in automobile assembly. We're starting to see uh, robotic and AI for the, uh, it was in one of the local malls and we saw one of the robot sentries wandering around, you know, who are you? <laughs> I think, you know, RoboCop, but, um, uh, you know, as it's wandering around. Omni-consumer uh, products. You know, interrogating people. Yeah. So, but I, I think the, the role of the role of robotic technologies is going to be a, a disruptor for manned spaceflight in the 21st century. And you're going to ask, what's the balance between human spaceflight and robotic uh, vehicles? We have robotic vehicles operating on the surface of Mars uh, today. Um, what's the role of robots uh, going forward as we continue to explore Mars? And what's the balance between um, human spaceflight and robotic, uh, uh, robotic technologies for both LEO, for the moon, for Mars, and, uh, and elsewhere? So is, that, is the robotic aspect of 21st century flight, space flight, is that what's personally exciting you the most? You know, what, what to you is something you'd want to be involved in or spend more of your time with? What is, what is really exciting to you? You know, I, um, I, I, I think that, you know, the, the fact that actually going to uh, continue the exploration of Mars, Mars may have uh, uh, some early evidence for what, the history of the solar system was during those first billion years, which is the rise of life. I think the most exciting is in the most exciting issue for uh, 21st century uh, science is the discovery of life elsewhere uh, off of off of Earth. And what is the history of life? And, you know, part of that can come from an understanding of the formation of the solar system. If you look at all the exoplanets, that are around. I mean, we've got thousands of examples of exoplanets. What we need is something like, um, you know, a factor of a hundred more examples of planetary systems in our solar system in order to understand the history of planetary formation. And then we can put our solar system in the context of this history. Then um, from that, we know really nothing about the history of life as you say what was why is it that life kind of exploded on the scene uh here on earth and to me a big question is why don't we see life elsewhere uh within our our solar system of any form yeah. or even yeah. you know the archaeological i mean the the fossilized remains of life or something the question to speak to how life arose on Earth. It's the multicellular life question for me because it's, it's. I, I would be amazed but not shocked if we found you know Europa to be replete with uh, unicellular organisms mm -hmm. like bacteria. It would be a, a great discovery and a great find. It would tell us a lot about. Um, you know, it would take our N of one and go, okay, maybe this is more typical right. of what planets have and how, how molecules arrange themselves right. in, in, in formations we call life. But it's the jump to this very complicated multicellular 
uh, or a very complicated eukaryotic cell, not even multicellular, this eukaryotic cell. The machinery inside a eukaryotic cell is just vastly more complicated, not just a little bit, vastly more complicated than your average bacteria. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is more complicated than you know a virus. So it's these, like you said, these jumps. What prompts these jumps to uh, for more complexity? What kind of selection pressures need to it's, be there? That's what's not clear. You know, Peter Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel has his his book Zero to One, which is talking about startups, right? And and I think you've kind of captured that is, you know, going from zero to one, right? How can you go? How can you go from like one example of something? To, to many. And, uh, you know, we have one example for life in the solar system and, you know, a, a conundrum where if life is so resilient, if life is so plentiful, you expect to find life elsewhere. The Why planetary, is it? That, you know, well, the, the planetary story too is, you know, it's, it's, uh, you, you, you think that the the uh, so the story of selection, uh, you know, of, of evolution of natural selection is that the, the typical story is that uh, living creatures and living organisms here have have uh, come to be in, in response to the selection pressures of the environment here. But it's it's much more mm -hmm. interesting than that, right? Because I mean, Earth is in a lot of ways geoengineered by life itself. You mentioned one of the right. one the, the oxygen levels is a great example of that, right? I mean, our atmosphere is engineered by organisms in the same way that what fascinates me on the astrobiologic uh, front is where you find bacteria is just an insane, right? Nuclear reactor pools in clouds and water droplets, uh, and who knows how much bacteria is in present in water in the Earth's crust. A lot of it, uh, based from just uh, mm -hmm. um, oil wells and, and things like that. So, it just seems like it, not shocking to me to be able to find these things on Mars. What would be shocking is you know getting a radio signal for you. It's like even the even the very complicated life well, we have on Earth. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone, I, I you know, everyone always talks about how uh, a dolphins are really smart. Yeah, they're smart, but they're not. No, you know, I've never seen two of them go. Let's just tie some seaweed together and create a net, right? I mean, it's not, right. it's the the jump to intelligence, whether it was a fluke or not, is quite a, another huge leap. Um, yeah. So, so that's so it's really the science. Even though you have a very deep interest in the commercial aspect, to you, it's a vehicle to do great science too. Yeah, I mean, I you know, you you can look at all the wealth that will be created uh, on these things and. Know, the economic benefit and you know whether that economic benefit is shared with everyone on the planet I mean that's all sort of uh, sort of TBD but you know much like with the uh, export you know age of exploration and the age of discovery we're expanding our understanding of the world uh, of the world that we live in and provide a, a you know a better a better context for uh, what's happened in the past and you know what may happen uh, happen in in the future it's phenomenal that we have robotic vehicles operating on mars it's phenomenal yeah. that we've sent uh, you know spacecraft the outer reaches of uh, of the solar system and it's phenomenal that we've got you know examples of planetary systems today that we didn't have uh, 20 years ago so um what would you know, technology you is always going to continue to move forward what would you tell somebody uh, who is a young entrepreneur or at least somebody who is just about to embark on that path? And what does the future look like for them? I mean, obviously very positive from what, the discussion we've had so far. What specific piece of advice would you talk to, you know, would you tell yourself or let's say, 
you know, uh, back when you were 23 or 22 and thinking, you know, I really want to be part of the space, yeah. commercial space ecosystem. I've got an idea. What do I do? Where do I go? Who do I talk to? I don't have a network. Yeah. I don't have access to capital. What do I do? What are the steps? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think for I think for young people, um, it's uh, and the young people I've worked with. Uh, one of the lessons I try and instill is have confidence in yourself. Um, I usually have some high school students I'm working with. I'm like, hey, go call these people. Go go talk to them. Go and they're like, I don't know anything about this. I'm like, well, you know, do it anyway. You know, go build confidence in yourself to do things uh, to do things that are hard. You know, by doing things where you didn't think you could do them, uh, and you do them, you start to build confidence uh, in yourself. Um, also, you know, as you're talking about the future, uh, it's good to have a plan for what you want to do. You need to spend some time and say, what are the things that are important for you. Um, whether it's, you know, spending a lot of time at the office or spending a lot of time at home, you know, work intentionally, uh, have an intention in what your day is. You know, since, you know, for time immemorial and certainly, you know, under the guise of Benjamin Franklin, <laughs> right? He's like, time is the stuff that, that, you know, I you know, time is the stuff of which life is made of. And so use your time wisely and be intentional on your actions and you're intentional on your on your use of time because if you're intentional and you know what goals you have and you have confidence in yourself um as long as it doesn't violate rules of physics you could probably do almost anything and uh you know your goal is to first uh have confidence in yourself and then have get you know have other people get have confidence in you and you get confidence people have confidence in you by you know being true to your word being careful about what you say yes to, and uh, and then being uh, you know executing on on those things. My my nephew, for instance, was uh, you know he's an Eagle Scout today, but you know there was a time where he's like, I don't know if I want to be an Eagle Scout. I'm like, well, you know, you've already gone down that path. Go finish it, because I can tell you, not finishing stuff really eats at you over time. And so uh, you know, once you start things, finish them, and then figure out where to. Uh, where to next? But um, yeah, I think you, you know, hit them. On, when it comes to yeah, when it comes to entrepreneurs, you know, you your, your goal is to get have other people have confidence in you, because that's whether it's your co-founders, your employees, or your investors, they want to know that you're firm of purpose. It's interesting when I ask you a question about entrepreneurship, at it, it always comes back down to personal values. Yeah. I, I think so. I mean, that's what that's what measures the test of time because it's under stress that personal values become apparent, right? It's not when times are good, but it's when the uh, when the hammer comes down. That's when you find out what people are really really made of, and it's your personal values. and And personal values are are kind of habits, right? You can create those things, right? You're like, this is the person I want to be, and you know, there's I forget what the steps are but there's kind of awareness knowledge habit so forth and you know eventually it becomes ingrained that this is what you this is what you do and and i don't believe that there's you know people are born a, a particular way i think people create you know it's it's mr han out of bruce lee 
where he's like, you know, we are the, you know, forged and the, we are the souls that are forged in the in self-discipline or something like that. I mean, Mr. Hans said it better than I could ever say it, but, uh, you know, go back to Enter the Dragon and you can see that, you know, anybody that, uh, um, you know, people are, people are made uh, through their own uh, determination. Yeah. I mean, you can have the deck stacked against you, but you can't keep someone down uh, forever. They keep yeah. working on it if every day is intentional. Like this is what I'm going to go do, and I mean you can go back to you know what what Musk said about the space looks hard, and it's harder than it looks. I would say a lot of things look hard, and they're probably harder than it looks. Yeah, if you look at uh, you know Supreme Court justices, that looks hard, and it's probably harder than it looks. Or, or you know anybody that's you know had the tiger by the tail. Having the tiger by the tail looks hard, and it's probably harder than it looks. <laughs> That's right. Um, Sean, this has been a really uh, very helpful overview of how to think about you know, 21st century, not just commercial space, but really what space can do for people um, and um, the opportunities uh, within it. How can someone get a hold of you? How do we find out what you're up to? Uh, and what you find is interesting moving forward. I, I, I'd say you can always reach out to me on LinkedIn and uh, you know, we're happy to accept connections. If you send me a brief message, it says not just you know connect, but send me a message as to why you'd like, like to connect. Um, that will kind of get my attention, but you can always find me on LinkedIn as, uh, as Sean Casey. And I probably have a much younger picture <laughs> of me up there during my good looking phase. Okay. So. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. And um, I'll put those links down in the description of this podcast so people can get a hold of you. And if there's anything that comes to mind uh, that you ever want to uh, talk about with us uh, on, on the phone again um, or anything that's really exciting, please reach out and let me know because I'd love to have you on. Sure. So we can yeah. Well, thank you very much, Ravi, for the yeah. Thank you very much, Ravi, for the opportunity to, to, be, to be part of the program here. And uh, it's always good uh, talking to you. You know, thank you. You've always uh, you give, kind of give me an opportunity to talk, but I always enjoy talking to you as well, because I always, I always <laughs> have and always expect to learn a lot from what you have to say. So thanks a lot. Thanks, buddy. 